Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Perspectives, the interview podcast for the Northeastern University Political Review magazine. I'm your host, Brian Grady, and this week I'll be talking to Rintaro Nishimura about the current state of Japanese politics. In a bit of a departure for the show, our interview wasn't inspired by an article recently published on our website. Instead, we decided to act fast and get something recorded as the Japanese prime minister election had just recently been completed and the general election was coming up only a few days after we spoke. I'll go over these results a little bit more in the outro. But until then, I hope this conversation helps shine a light on a political culture that most American audiences aren't overly familiar with, which is especially relevant as Asia-Pacific politics become an increasing focus in international relations debate and forecasting. All that said, let's get into the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to this week's New Perspectives podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grady, and this week we'll be talking to Rintaro Nishimura about the upcoming election in Japan, the new Kishida administration, and all sorts of developments in Japanese politics. Rintaro, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks. I am Rintaro Nishimura. I am a fifth-year poli-sci major. I am also managing editor at Newper, and I haven't written a piece on this, but I did get myself on the podcast, so I'm happy to talk about Japanese politics anytime, and happy to be here. Yeah, that is kind of our norm to have our guests come on if they've written an article, but this subject was so pressing, and you had so many thoughts that we figured you'd have you on anyway. So the big thing is there's been some turnover in the Liberal Democratic Party in Japan in the past few years. Quite notably, Abe, who I think was, to most Western audiences, the most known PM in a long time, uh, retired. He was replaced by Suga. And now, in a relatively short time span, he has been replaced again by Fumio Koshida. You mind talking about kind of some of that process, where Koshida comes from within the LDP, and what this means for the LDP as the major party in Japan. Sure. So when we talk about Japanese politics, as you probably learned when we were in Professor Aldrich's class, it's pretty complex structure. And there are things called factions. They're sort of like little families, I would call them, where there's a there's a leader within each faction is sort of like the family head. And you've got a bunch of lawmakers who are part of that faction. They have some sort of ideological b- binding and they, they are sort of together in, in a sense that they're, they have some pol- common policy goals and they also work together when it comes to elections. And so Abe's um, coalition or faction was actually the biggest one and it's the, the far right within the, the conservative party, which is the Liberal Democratic Party. And so that Abe faction, which is actually called the Hosoda faction, just because the president's name is Hosoda, but anyway... The Abe faction is the largest faction, and he was in control for 12 years. It, it turned over to Suga, who was actually unaffiliated. He was independent, so he had no ties to any of the factions, which is kind of rare these days, for a leader at least. And that went on for a year, and obviously COVID happened, and he didn't really deal with COVID as well as people wanted him to, and his approval ratings tanked by I think the first month it was already down by like 10 percentage points. And so the LDP decided it was time to replace him. And it was the period when there was an election in September this year. It was actually the, the regular election was going to happen anyway. So they decided to to field other candidates. And Fumio Kishida, who was actually, he ran last year when they tried to replace Abe and he lost to Suga. But this time around, the factions 
they came behind Kishida instead of Suga, and that forced Suga out of the race before it even started. And so at the end of the day, the factions, there are seven of them, but most of them, I think five of them, ended up backing Kishida, and so he ended up becoming prime minister. And he's a leader of one of the factions, so it was sort of like a a behind-the-scenes deal again where the people don't get to really choose who their prime minister is. And that's one of the criticisms, actually, of the LDP is that they have their own in-house election where their um, diet members and party um, members in local districts get to vote, but none of the constituents do. So as I said, Abe's faction is on the far right of the conservatives, so they're already on the right side of the Japanese political spectrum. But Kishida falls into the sort of center-left of the right. Of the right, which is kind of, this is the thing about Japanese politics is that it's weird in the sense that the center left is pretty much the same in terms of policy ideals with the, the opposition, which is also the center left right now, the Constitutional Democratic Party. And if you if you see some of the, the things that they've said after Kishida was voted in was that our policies are pretty much the same as yours. So you're not really a conservative. You can actually work with us in this next administration. And so it's it's a kind of a weird jumble of people in the center and the left. And then you've got people like Abe who are really on the right. But once they become prime minister, they kind of tone it down a bit. So the question that arises is, why would the LDP pick someone from the center left who lost already just a year ago? What changed? What made him a more appealing selection now? So I would say that well, Suga's, Suga was an experiment. He was the interim he was supposedly the interim when he came in when Abe stepped down because he was supposed he was supposedly sick. He he's already back, so I, I doubt that he was actually sick. But he said he was sick. He resigned, and they chose someone who wasn't affiliated to any of the factions. And he was not very popular to begin with because no one really knew who he was. He was sort of like the shadow guy for Abe's um, cabinet. He was the chief cabinet secretary, which is sort of like a shadow government leader kind of position where no one really gets to know what he's actually doing, but he's actually like the guy who does a lot of things behind the scenes. Would the equivalent be in the U.S. politics like the whip for a party? Yeah. Like he gets rallies the votes. He doesn't necessarily known for his own he's policy. More, he's more like the, I don't know if there's an equivalent in America, but he controls the bureaucracy, the connections between the, okay. the, the po- politicians and the bureaucracy. And he does, he does also the press secretary kind of deals. So people do get to see him. But obviously, he's just reading off a script, so you don't really get to know him as a person. So now we get to know him as a person. He's pretty bland, so they choose to replace him in a year, and then Kishida comes along. And as you said, he lost the last election because he was actually told not to run by some of his peers in the the fellow Dovish faction. But in the end, he ended up running and lost. And so I, I heard that one of his faction members told him to not run again this time. But he risked running to lo- even losing some of his own supporters within the party. But he did run, and it actually worked. It was a gamble that worked. And I think the the number one reason they chose Kishida was he was the safe candidate this time. If you see the the other candidates, uh, Kono Taro, he, the, he was the number one choice for most of the people. If you if you see the polls running up to the election, he's he actually graduated Georgetown, so he's more known in in the U.S. than other politicians and. He's more of a reformist, I would call him, within the party. He's more center, not left, but around centrist. And he was very popular, but 
the party elders who are mostly conservative don't really like him. They don't like change, first of all, in Japan mostly. So that was a problem. And then the other candidate who was in the running was uh, Abe's darling, we should call her, because she was endorsed by Abe. And she was a really conservative candidate. Her name was Sanae Takaichi. And obviously, that's on the other poll from、um, Kono. And so you, they decided to choose someone who was in between, and it was Kishida. And he isn't very known for outbursts or anything that might be controversial ahead of an election. So it was the safe choice. Interesting. So we've kind of discussed how the faction structure is a little bit novel to a US audience. I guess kind of refocusing on obviously when most US commentators are talking about Japan, their interest usually boils down to defense in East Asia. So, what would be a summary of Kishida's defense policy at this point, and how might it be perceived as a departure from Abe or Suga? Because, like you mentioned, he's from a dovish faction. So, where does he fit in now? Yeah, the thing about Kishida is that as much of a dove that people call him, we don't really know what his policy stances are. Like, if you go back to when Abe was. Prime Minister in 2006 and t- between 2006 and 2007, that was really conservative, and he really pushed his conservative agenda. Well, that's part of the reason why he lost the the premiership in in a year. But he toned that down in the second term. But you could you know that he's a conservative because he's written books about that. He's also done speeches that people have have recorded, and and we know that he's a conservative. But when it comes to Kishida, he's actually. It's not like the number of books matter, but he's only written two books. One of them hap- was the book that came out last year before the election, the f- previous election when Suga became prime minister. And that was just a really bland look at what his policies were. And it was pretty much the same as the campaign pledges he made officially before the election. And his other book was about nuclear nonproliferation, which he's from Hiroshima. So. Okay. He, he had to write about that. But besides that, he kind of jumps all over the place when it comes to policies. For example, he wasn't really a, a conservative or a, a hawkish defense policy kind of guy when it comes to like, missile defense. And, and that's a big theme right now, especially with North Korea and China. And now, after the, the 20,、uh, this 2021 election, he started saying we should have enemy base strike capabilities, which is Something that the conservatives have talked about a lot, but it hasn't really happened because the public really isn't sure what that means and what that would mean for, for getting attacked by the other side.、So. And that would require amending the constitution, right? Yeah, that's the kind of the gray zone where they talk about as long as it's, it's a retaliatory strike or we know a missile is incoming, that would be self defense and it wouldn't require an amendment to the constitution. But The opposition would say it is unconstitutional because you're, it hasn't landed yet. But then the problem with that is would we retaliate after a missile lands? That's kind of, you know, it's not dumb, but you are getting hit already. And that wouldn't make a lot of sense. Well, and of course, there's got to be a question of if the missile was ever meant to actually hit a target, could you still attack? Because North Korea is not usually aiming to hit, but they sure fire a lot of missiles. And could you attack that? Yeah, and, and, the, and the thing about enemy base strike is that it makes sense in the, in the sense that if North Korea does shoot a lot of missiles and they can shoot a lot of missiles at once, Japan's defense, their anti missile defense, isn't capable enough to, to shoot down all of those missiles. So the idea that the conservatives have come up with is that 
before they start shooting, we should shoot them first because we know they're going to shoot us. And then the question is, when do we know when they're going to shoot us? And how do we know that they're going to shoot us? And how do we justify that? And, you know, there's all kinds of questions and none of that's been resolved. He has said after he became prime minister that he would consider enemy-based strike capabilities. And that was right after the North Korean missile launch, I think, the second one or the third one. They've shot a bunch this last you month You know, it happens so. from yeah. time to time. <laughs> yeah. So that's in terms of North Korea. What does mm. the defense policy look like relative to China right now? Yeah. So China is, I think, the, the rising problem. I think so far in Japanese history, North Korea has been more of a threat in terms of missiles just because... North Korea is um, likely to attack U.S. bases, and obviously the closest U.S. base besides South Korea is Japan. And so the primary concern has been North Korea. I don't think anybody expected China to do anything just because of the relationship that Japan has with China. But at this point, it's becoming increasingly clear that China might attack at least the U.S. base or the Senkaku Islands or Taiwan and Obviously, Taiwan is only like 100 kilometers away from the, the southern tip of Japan. So a lot of defense analysts say that if something breaks out in Taiwan, it's definitely going to involve Japan's territory. And that means the SDF is going to have to come out and that's going to be a war with China potentially. And so the concern has been rising. And I think the defense minister and even even since Abe have been saying that we need to increase our defense spending because China's defense spending is increasing exponentially and Japan is getting dwarfed in terms of defense spending. Does Japan have the economic elasticity to expand its defense spending as much as that might require? Yeah, so that's that was actually something that came up in the, the campaign and and I think the conservative candidate, uh, Takaichi, was, she's like the, the Abe candidate in this race. And she advocated for um, increasing defense spending to 2% of GDP, which is what NATO does, I think, for, for their commitments to, to the alliance or the network. And that, I think, isn't infeasible, but it doesn't make a lot of sense in, because of what's happening with COVID and just the amount of spending the government's already having to commit to in the economic sphere. And so in that sense, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But at the same time, we know that China is spending a lot and the threats are becoming very diverse and, and advanced, as you know, and you, I probably mentioned this before, but the hypersonic missile test happened in, I think it was in over the summer for China. And so that's a new threat that's going to emerge. And hypersonic just, it's, I think it's five times faster than the speed of light or speed of sound. Sounds, yeah, not, not speed of light. Than the speed of light. That speed would be sound, some impressive yeah. weapons technology. And it goes on, uh, at low altitudes, which means that radars can't catch them. And so that becomes a real problem when it comes to Japan's, not old, but not as advanced as hypersonic missile defense systems. And I, I hope that doesn't start like a hypersonic war in Japan. I don't think has any plans to enter that yet, but I know that North Korea has tested one. And the U.S., I think, came out with a statement, I think it was last week, that they also tested a hypersonic missile. And so this is becoming more of a, a common thing now. And I think Japan is increasingly concerned that their defense capabilities are getting outdated. So... So I guess that's the question. If the U.S. has that type of technology, is Japan in a position now where it's starting to worry that the U.S. is not 
a supportive ally in defense and they need their own technologies and stuff? Or are they going to try and remain reliant on the U.S. in that area? Personally, I would think I thought before I started studying these things that the conservatives, at least, were not really wanting to rely on the U.S. because I think the really conservative people would tell you that they still say that the Constitution was forced on Japan by the United States. And then there's people who are like, why are we even relying on the United States for, uh, for uh, defense when we can acquire our own weapons and defend ourselves? And I think most conservatives like Abe, even Abe, I think, is, is realistic and pragmatic in the sense that he understands that the United States is our most important partner when it comes to, to foreign relations. And defense relies on the U.S.-Japan alliance. And... I think Ambassador Sugiyama was, was correct in saying that Japan's task now is to show what it can do and not just say it can do it, but actually make sure that we are doing, we are taking our role in the alliance more seriously. And I think the, the term that comes up a lot is interoperability, is just making sure that the U.S. capabilities are integrated into Japan's defense. So making sure the U.S. and Japan can work together when a crisis actually hits and in that sense, I think that the that Japanese officials are, are sure that the U.S. will continue to, to play a, a massive role in Japan's defense. And it's just making sure that Japan is also holding up its end of the partnership. I guess one thing when discussing U.S. involvement is, does it seem like any of the Japanese leaders in the defense area are at all concerned about the mildly isolationist posture the U.S. took in, during the past administration and potentially could take again? Is there any suspicion that the U.S. might pull back more away from that relationship rather than Japan? Um, I think in terms of defense, I haven't heard a lot about questions about U.S. commitments. I know there was the, the talk about, um, so the INF Treaty, which is the Intermediate Range Nuclear Missile, I think, Missile Force Treaty that covers missiles between 500 to 5,500 kilometers. They're like the, the mid-range missiles that were recently We terminated lifted. that about yeah. three years yeah. ago. Yeah. And so those are now open for use. And since it, has, it wasn't before, in Asia, the problem was that China has a lot of those missiles that are within that range. But, and the United States wasn't able to, to put those in the region, but now they are. And there's been talks about putting U.S. missiles in Japan. And obviously that causes a lot of issues when it becomes nuclear capable because obviously Japan has a history with nuclear weapons. And we've pledged that we wouldn't um, possess or let in any nuclear weapons. And so it's an interesting question where is Japan ready to kind of sidestep that norm and allow U.S. weapons into the country to make sure that we can defend against these missiles incoming from other threatening states? Or will we pursue defense, solely defense, which I think most analysts would tell you that defense costs more than offense. So it will cost a lot. And I think it makes sense to consider at least acquiring offensive capabilities that obviously aren't going to be used to start wars, but to, to at least deter wars. So discussing, to kind of pivot from defense, we're talking about costs of defense. Let's talk about economics. So in, in some statements, Kashida has suggested recently that some of the past trickle-down models of his predecessors are not as successful as they could be, and that they're potentially looking at a different approach 
to economics in Japan. What does that look like now? Yeah, so this was also a big issue during the campaign. And the question I think that was raised by a lot of the, the reporters was, how is your policy different from Abenomics and Suganomics, which are pretty much the same thing? And for Kishida, it was coming up with this catchy phrase. It was called the income doubling plan, which was actually something that um, Prime Minister Ikeda Hayato in 1960 came up with. And he actually is the the original president of his faction, the Dovish faction within the LDP. So I think he, he used that deliberately too. And, and essentially that plan in 1960 was to, I think it was to increase economic growth to 7%, which is unthinkable now, but that was the plan. And to focus more on high-end exports to make sure Japan was pushing out exports and making money. And that obviously worked. And I guess that's not really the, the deal that's happening today or what Kishida's proposing. He's proposing something he calls new capitalism, which is essentially making sure income is redistributed from the wealthy to the poor. And that's kind of something I think of a trend in other countries as well. I think originally the plan was to tax uh, financial income, which is, I think, stocks and whatnot. And I think raising wages for um, workers like nurses and healthcare workers. And, and it seems like a very nice idea in principle, but <laughs> I think as soon as he announced that um, print policy, the, the stock average in Japan is the Nikkei stock average. It went down, I think, 800 yen, which is kind of a big deal. I feel like there was something similar when Biden yeah. was like, yeah, we're going to maybe try and increase <laughs> some of the taxes on uh, interest gained from stocks. And it was like, nope, that's yeah. the so mine's going down. Obviously, weren't yeah. happy with that. And he had to retract that, like, I think three or four days after he became prime minister. And he said, nope, we're not doing that. It's going to be, it's going to be extended. And I think people were kind of confused what his policies were. And, and in the government's official, I uh, know the LDP's election pamphlet, which came out a few weeks ago for this upcoming general election, I don't think he included any of that rhetoric about new capitalism or trickle down or any of that. So it's kind of like, uh, did he just go back on that because he knows it's unrealistic and that was just, you know, campaign talk. And I think it partially was campaign talk, but then I would also say that the campaign pamphlets are made by the LDP's policy research team. And that team is led by um, Takaichi, who was actually one of the candidates in the race and one of Abe's um, successors. So it kind of tells you that the pamphlet's going to look a little more conservative than it, it should or it would have if Kishida was in charge. So it's, there's just a lot of uncertainties when it comes to this guy. So. And people wonder why the Japanese youth are not active in voting <laughs> yeah, anymore that much. Yeah. I think it's just, as I said earlier, it's really confusing where you draw the line. As a voter, I, I can't vote, unfortunately, because I'm not in the country. But it's really confusing when it comes to economic policy, especially. I actually talked to someone, uh, an, a journalist at a, at a well-known newspaper, and we were talking about so what, what is wrong with the opposition? And we were talking about, there aren't a lot of alternatives they can raise when it comes to like economic policy because it's just like the LDP is, and the CDP, which is the, the largest main opposition, is pretty much the same on most of these issues. It's really more on the, the ideals in terms of like conservative values, like family tradition, same-sex marriage, and defense, perhaps, that are wildly different. Everything else is pretty much the same. So then it, the, I think the voters are going to question 
who do I vote for? I mean, I don't know who these people are anyway because I'm not as engaged anyway. So when it comes voting day, it's like, who am I voting for? Oh, I guess the LDP is the government, so I might as well vote for them. Or if you don't like the LDP, then you're going to vote for the opposition, not really knowing what the opposition is coming up with. And I, I, we might be able to get into that a little more later. But the opposition coalition is kind of weird, too, because you have the, the center-left CDP and the, the very left Communist Party working together. Yeah, and, and they've brokered that kind of for yeah, the first time, it sounds like. Yeah, it's the first time it's actually worked in the sense that in most of the single member districts, which is where, you know, one candidate, it's one V one is the ideal. And so far it's always been like one LDP candidate versus like four opposition candidates. And they always split the vote and LDP guy wins all the time. This time, I think in most, at least 80% of the seats, they're able to unify behind one candidate. And so there was a sense of, I think among people, there was a sense of Maybe this might be the, the election that something will change. But, you know, looking at the polls that are coming out, it seems like the, the CDP, which is supposedly the biggest opposition party, is going to keep the same amount of seats. So I don't know if this is working. And I think the part of the problem is that there's such an ideological difference between the, the communists and the center left. And it's just a weird coalition. And the communists are an interesting party because they mostly disavow the major Marxist figures. And I believe of all the Japanese parties, they were like the only one not to congratulate the Chinese Communist Party on their 100th birthday. Yeah. It's a strange relationship there. Yeah, I, I read a fascinating article about that. And, you know, I don't want to go too much into this because we can talk forever about the Communist Party. But uh, it, it's interesting. Yeah, they they were asked that question actually i was watching a an in, uh, a debate and one of the reporters asked so how how close are you to the communist party in china and and do you talk or is there any sort of cooperation and and the chairman he was very angry at that idea that they were in any way related to the chinese communist party i think it's just the name that they say is the same and we don't share any of the ideals and I actually researched a bit into their website and i think there was a statement that condemned xi jinping for the atrocities in in the um xinjiang region and the human rights abuses that were happening and so i was like okay they're they're not they're not on board with all this communist stuff that the chinese are coming up with so it was it was interesting well, I guess to pivot off that, like you said, refocusing kind of on the subject at hand, we've talked about economics with the kind of new uh, LDP's stance on it, which isn't that new. What about social values? We've obviously recently seen um, some events related to the royal family and the marriage there. What kind of remains contentious and what direction is the LDP going with some of these social aspects? Yeah. Um, I think we can start with that, the marriage. Um, I, I, I personally don't really mind because, you know, the princess is leaving. The The tradition is that when a, a woman of the imperial family marries a man that is a commoner, she leaves the, the family. So it's not really controversial in that sense. It was just that this particular guy um, had a lot of issues back in the day when they first started the this relationship. And so that was sort of more of the problem. But it did raise the question of what happens when there's no male heirs. And and that's a contentious issue because the LDP is staunchly against female lineage and they're, they're, they're trying to come up with ways that the male lineage continues. And I think there's an expert committee within the government right now that's debating who and how they should decide who the, the successor is. And the, uh, the opposition are 
are on the opposite end of that, and they say it, it doesn't matter as long as the, the lineage continues. But and everyone is still firmly in favor of continuing. Yeah, the it's it's from. been like that since, as far as we know. So I think people are against change again. I think this particular case was troublesome and and it formed a lot of opinion against the female lineage because this particular guy had a lot of issues and I think people were wondering whether that guy's son should become the next emperor and I think that was part of the problem and it might continue for some time until we, we find a, de a decent commoner who, who takes the a princess and becomes part of the imperial family but yeah for now i don't see any changes there and in terms of same-sex marriage that was a whole fiasco over the summer um the ldp actually were lobbied by a lot of business and um opposition and civil society organizations i think even um one of the largest japanese tech companies um Rakuten's ceo He's pretty outspoken in politics and he was also part of this coalition that was demanding that the ldp accept and pass a legislation that would recognize LGBTQ+. And that was strung up in the LDP's policy division where they basically discuss policy before they send a bill up to the diet. And apparently there was a lot of you know, controversy within the party where there's, again, there's like these people who are really on the right of the spectrum and there's people who are sort of in the center, don't really care too much about those family values and they're okay with the idea of having um, same-sex marriage. And so there was a whole deal there and it ended up getting killed before the summer and we're here. And during the, the debates for the presidential election, um, Kishida was asked about it and he was coy about it. He's kind of punted on it. He doesn't he, have a clear he, stance. The thing about Kishida is he's really coy about most of his answers. He, he's, he does this, the, uh, the, he doesn't go either way and he says, we're going to discuss it. And he, he sort of ends it there. So... I don't see much happening, especially now that Abe's people are in key positions, especially in the policy division. You've got Takaichi, who's a real conservative. I don't see a lot happening on that end either. So not a lot of change as much as they want to say it's changed. Mm. And then I guess kind of moving, sticking a little bit with the stuff from the royal family, uh, women's rights and stuff, there's been a lot of discussion about family names and marriage there. Yes, so that was also another issue that came up. So in Japan, usually the, the woman, when she marries, takes the husband's surname. Common in most Western yes. countries, too. And the problem is that it's obviously kind of outdated. I mean, you should get a choice. I also, as much as I do support the LDP when it comes to like defense policy, I don't agree with these really outdated traditional positions on... I mean, who cares what your surname is? I think the I think the argument is really flimsy as well. One of the people that support, and she's a woman, so I was kind of surprised she was supporting this. But the argument she had was that, you know, it messes up the legal system. And I was like, but the legal system is there to change for the times. You know, you can't just stay with the, the laws that were enacted in like nineteen, I don't know, thirty or something. So, I think it makes sense to change it. But again, it's it's this thing where. You're going to see policy divisions within the party first, even before it gets to the general public. And that's the thing about the LDPs, that they can kill anything that is controversial or they think is against their values before it even gets to the public. And so they have the sort of agenda-setting power even before it gets to the diet. And if the opposition send a, a bill to the diet on any of these issues, they, it gets shut down because they don't have a majority in either of the houses. 
Are there any kind of, I haven't studied this aspect of Japanese politics, are there ballot referenda in any kind? Like in U.S. American states, obviously, before the national uh, legalization of same-sex marriage, uh, there was state-by-state -state legalization. Does that kind of thing exist in Japan? Yeah, um, I envy the United States. And I talk to you know, some American people about this. And, you know, they tell me the American system isn't as good as you make of it. And I say, hey, but you should you should come to Japan because we don't have any of that referendum stuff that you have. The only referendum I can think of is when the Constitution is amended. At the end, they have to force it through a, a vote of the people. And that's a referendum that we don't really get to choose, but we get to at least vote. That's interesting. The difference yeah. in the U.S. where our yeah. Constitution stuff... I might be messing up my own U.S. politics. I don't believe, yeah, we don't vote individually on constitutional Yeah, referendum. our constitution is is very rigid when it comes to change, and it's a super majority in both houses, and then it's a majority, simple majority of the people. And I think the only other example of a referendum is a non-binding one in Okinawa, and obviously Okinawa is a, a, another contentious thing when it comes to U.S.-Japan relations. And they had a referendum in 2019 and even before that about getting rid of U.S. bases. And most of the time, they do, they do support it, but obviously it's just non-binding. It doesn't, have, any it doesn't yeah. have anything. But they did sue the government over that after the referendum. They used the referendum as support to, to sue the government. And you know, there's a whole fiasco there, too. But Reminds me of a campus student government referendum. But anyway... <laughs> So pivoting, I guess, again, to another topic, probably one of our last ones here, talking about how, in many respects, Japan was and remains a leading figure on nuclear disarmament, kind of going off from that, from that international regulation and agreement of a harmful on a harmful science, to what extent are they looking towards a key role on climate change in the future? Yeah, um, those are very two good issues. And I think I expect Kishida to do a lot more on the nuclear non-proliferation side, especially because he is a prime minister from Hiroshima. He understands, I think he's passionate about this issue, at least more than the other ones, at least. And, you know, I think that the Japanese government has kept Hiroshima and Nagasaki waiting for a long time when it comes to to taking a leading role in not nuclear non-proliferation. Obviously, we're a U.S. treaty partner and we're supported by the, the nuclear umbrella and we do use the nuclear weapons as sort of our last resort when it comes to some sort of contingency and so it's kind of troublesome and i understand the dilemma there for the government when it comes to like signing the tpnw the treaty for uh what was it proliferation of nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons yeah. yeah and they haven't signed it but if you go back to um august 15th or no oh, that's that's the end of the war um august 6 and 8 i believe or was it nine? I think it was six and nine. The, they had the nuclear, um, the ceremony for the 75th, I believe, or 76th anniversary, 76th, I think, anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And both mayors of those um, cities and prefecture, the governors as well, they urged the government to sign the TPNW. And here's to me hoping that at least Kishida says something about what he's going to do. But for now, I think in the policy the speech he made, he only said that Japan would be taking a leading role, which is what they say all the time, but they don't do much beyond that. So I'm hoping that there is some sort of action when it comes to, you know, maybe a UN resolution that they haven't signed on to, something that's different from the past. 
hopefully, but you know, I think it's troublesome again because of the U.S. nuclear umbrella. So we'll see what happens. But it's also kind of connected to the nuclear uh, North Korea issue, and you know, trying to get the the abduct, abduction um, problem resolved, and it's all sort of. Um, issues intertwined and so I, I don't think there's much happening there either but hopefully something happens and when it comes to climate change that's something that's actually changed over the the past few years I think under Abe climate change wasn't much of a, a priority especially after Trump came into power and he went away from the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement. Yeah, there was no more U.S. Yeah. pressure at all <laughs> yeah. That. yeah, and I think that gave Abe sort of the go sign to push that aside for the moment. And so Japan's um, emissions target was, I think, in the low 20s at that point. And under Suga, I, I think I commend Suga for this beyond the, the things that he hasn't done. I think that he has done a good job in terms of climate change. And he committed Japan to um, 46%, I think, reduction from 2013 levels by 2030. And total... De- what is it called? Decarbonization by 2050, which is ambitious. I think a lot of energy experts will tell you that it's not really realistic given Japan's energy demand. And, and made f- all the more difficult now that they're weaning themselves off nuclear energy. Yes, yes. That's, that's also, again, an issue that kind of connects the nuclear with the climate. That's also a problem with Japan is that there's obviously there was a big incident in 2011. I was there. I was a middle school student. I didn't know what was happening, but you were in, in the area near the site. No, I was in or? Tokyo, but oh, okay. I felt I even I felt the the, felt the quake. earthquake. So obviously it was it was devastating. I saw the news. You know, my grandparents had family there, and it was it was very tragic. Um, I still remember that day and. It makes sense that we try to get rid of nuclear power as soon as possible. But at the same time, I think it's unrealistic to just say, let's get rid of it right now. Because as you know, renewable energy is very volatile when it comes to like storage. And I don't think there's a lot of storage technology, at least now. And you know, in the daytime, there might be a lot of energy. But when it comes to nighttime, like solar probably is useless. At night. It is at night. There, yeah. there is storage technologies, but the amount of resources it takes to build them and the costs, it, it's not a settled issue. Yeah. So that's obviously a big issue. So I know the conservatives, the real conservatives, I'll call them, re- want to make new ones. New. New nuclear reactors because the old ones are getting old. And Kishida has actually pledged not to do that, but you know he can flip-flop, so we don't know. But I think for now, the public is against that, and I don't think they'll risk going against the public on that. But they are thinking about um, restarting the current nuclear reactors as long as the Nuclear Regulation Authority approves their restarts. So that's probably going to happen, at least for the short term. But in this new energy plan that they came up with, last, I think, last week, before COP26, which is, I think, also over the weekend, or maybe it's already started, the climate summit in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. It was right, the, the energy plan was pub, uh, released right before that, and it committed to 46% reduction and as much renewable energy as possible. So that's, again, very vague. But Yeah, what do those technologies look like yeah, then, realistically? I mean, I, I've heard a lot of um, offshore wind, but the problem, again, is where do you make the the wind turbines and you know there's all this these technical problems and i think for now it seems more realistic to just stick with nuclear as the base load and 
hope that we can continue like funding um, green technologies. And I know ba the Bank of Japan started a new um, investment. I, th I think it's an investment fund for for companies that invest in green technologies and making green technologies. So hopefully Japan can catch up to a lot of the countries. It's been criticized at the UN. I remember Greta was criticizing um, <laughs> Japan for not, for I think for coal use, that was a problem. And yeah, we were condemned by a lot of the countries at the UN and it was very embarrassing. And I know Japan pledged to stop funding new coal plants abroad, but I think it's only for the new ones. And it's only if there are no other choices which is again very vague for other countries like in Southeast Asia. I think they said they'll invest if it's the only source available to that country. And I don't know, they can probably justify that in any way they want. So it's funny, but they are taking small steps towards renewable energy. So hopefully we see more change under Kishida. Well, it'll definitely be interesting to see. Any further points on this new government that you think you'd want to mention now before we go here? I would just say that as much as the the hype that that the LDP tried to bring to this this new government, it's probably going to look very much the same. It's just a new leader and a fresh face that hopefully is a little bit more appealing to the masses. But if you see the poll numbers recently, especially right before this election, it doesn't seem like there's the the bounce that we see when the new government comes in. Usually, they start around if it's even if it's not that good of a government, it starts around 70. The really good ones start at like 80-something. And even oh, Sugo was... government wishes that they have that high <laughs> yeah. I think even Sugo was around 75 or 76. And Kishida started at like 55 or something. So you can tell that the public is pretty pissed at the LDP for messing up a lot of things. I think chiefly among them was the vaccines we didn't start to create our own domestic vaccines. I think the first one is coming up now, and that's pretty yeah, late. Yeah, did distribution really start in Japan? Yeah, distribution was slow as well because we kept relying on um, EU exports, and there was a problem where the EU was, I wouldn't say hoarding, that's kind of... They were, yeah. we were as the US, <laughs> yeah. everybody was. Everyone was sort of in a state of disarray, and the, the problem was that we were relying too much on other countries. and. I just want to end by saying that economic security is a big issue. And one of those things was that Japan should be self-sufficient. And I think the pandemic really showed that Japan is pretty vulnerable when it comes to these issues. For example, the vaccines, we don't have a domestic base or structure to, to produce our own vaccines. We finally have our first domestic vaccine, hopefully by the end of the year, which is crazy because everyone's getting their third shot now. To so what extent crazy. can Japan pivot towards self-sufficiency, yeah. do you think, especially with their you know, declining workforce? Yes, that's a big problem. So I don't really see a lot of potential in terms of, like, as Kishida said, real structural change. I don't really see a structural change happening when your economy is not doing very well, at least for, the for these couple of years. It's just stagnant most of the time. And, you know, there's a declining workforce that also impacts defense. Obviously, we don't have as much people to work in the SDF. And in terms of just economics as well, economic efficiency is always touted, but what does that really mean? You know, So I don't really know what's happening there. But in terms of just 
sort of ending on the economic security, I think it's it's nice that Kishida has made a new position for economic security. It's becoming an increasingly important issue, especially with China, supply chains, and especially with the semiconductor shortage, as you probably know, most of the semiconductors come from Taiwan, and Taiwan is obviously a very politically contentious place. And I think the consensus among the Quad, which is um, Japan, US, Australia, and India, was that we need to sort of pivot away from Taiwan, not isolate them, but make sure that we have our own stock, should we say, so we don't isolate ourselves when something happens and perhaps China is able to shut off supply lines in that area. So I think economic, not self-sufficiency, but securing everyone's economic livelihoods is going to be a key issue. And I think that, frankly, I think that's the biggest issue that we'll face. I don't think wars are going to be the next big issue. It's going to be what happens when, you know, China cuts off or threatens to cut off trade, like when they did with Australia or when they actually secure sea lanes and they start cutting off supply routes. And, you know, a country like an island for us, Japan, it's, it's a big problem. So, I think that's going to be more of the contentious issue going forward. So I think that's something to look for in future. In the future. Well, thank you for your time, Rintero. It's been thank a very you. interesting discussion. Uh, anywhere we can find you, or anything you want to point us to for yeah, um, stuff you work on. I work. Um, obviously, I'm a Newper um, editor, so most of the work that goes there hopefully is run by me. I also do write. Recently, I haven't written, but hopefully, I can write a few more pieces before I leave Northeastern. And I have a Twitter account, which is pretty active. Um, it's Rin Nishimura, R-I-N-N-I-S-H-I-M-U-R-A. I'm pretty active on there. So if you're interested in Japanese politics or anything in Asia, I think I've, I cover a lot of that. So if you're interested, that's something to look at. You have your newsletter as well, don't you? Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, my website's also myname.com. So if anyone's interested, that's more of like a, a rundown of the week's news. Tweets are more like just off the, the cuff, like anything that I see on the, the web that's interesting. Right now is election season, so a lot. Plenty of, of things to yeah, talk about. Fury of tweets because it's, it's wild. It's, I'm excited. It's my first general election since becoming voting age, so kind of excited. But also, I forget, what is the voting age in Japan? Um, it's 18. It was lowered to 18, but it was lowered after I became 18, oh, so man. it was I think my first election was the upper house and I call it the, the I don't really want to say this, but it's, it's, it's a joke. So I, I, you know, we can, I can talk about that for like an hour, but <laughs> I won't, but yeah, it's my first general election. So I was kind of hoping that it would be more of a tight race so that I think that the LDP will become more accountable if they are given more of a, a, sm a slimmer lead, because yeah. I think that's the biggest problem is that they have so much slack that they can just keep doing whatever they want and not get punished. So hopefully this is sort of like a wake-up call for them. Well, we'll t let's see. Once again, thank you for your time. And yeah, the election's October 31st. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank Rintoro for stopping by to discuss the current Japanese political climate, where the country might be going economically and strategically, and where the United States might fit into that future. Normally, I'd direct you all to his article on our website, but this time, there isn't one. Instead, I'll point you to the resources and outlets he mentioned at the end of the last segment, 
such as his newsletter and tweets which actively report and comment on Japanese politics, primarily in English. To follow up on the general election, which we mentioned a few times in the show, the Liberal Democratic Party did retain their coalition advantage after the general election with their Komito partners. The center-left party, the CDP, actually lost seats, despite, or perhaps because of, their alliance they formed with the Communist Party of Japan. The Japan Innovation Party, which we didn't particularly mention in the show, was the greatest gainer of seats, going from 11 to 41 seats. Essentially, the result Rintaro and I suggested was most likely on the show was borne out, as few commentators suspected any significant readjustment of the LDP's position as Japan's dominant party. Wrapping up, feel free to stop by our website, nupoliticalreview.com, for more articles about international and U.S. politics. If you're a Nooper writer interested in coming on the show, reach out via Slack. We're always happy to have you. Thank you all for listening, and have a great day. <laughs>